Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Do we really have to wait to start drinking? No. Welcome to episode 66 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of music, trivia, and pretty much whatever the fuck else we want to talk about. I'm your host, Chad Knight, and with me as always is Lou Schwalbach. Hello, sir. I hate to inform you of this, but I am as cranky as fuck tonight, so this might be interesting. So how many seconds are we into this and you dropped your second F-bomb already? Uh, 25. <laughs> All right, this is going to be an interesting night. This week, we'll again be talking about movie music. We're continuing the series that talks about soundtracks that we've come across that, in our opinion, have a good selection of music to them. A good score and soundtrack are designed to, and will, move the film along and invoke feelings. Happiness, lightheartedness, dread, fear, sadness, you know, all the feels. And while there are some amazing scores out there, we'll be focusing more on soundtracks that have songs on them. We may delve a little into the flick itself, but this is more about the music than the movie, so don't be expecting an in-depth rundown on how and why the song fits a scene. Yeah, sign up for a fiction to film class if you want that kind of shit. Right, right. I mean, when we did Dazed and Confused last week, we talked a little bit about it, and then we decided that was just fucking stupid. You know, and so, and, yeah, and it's just in some parts, yeah, but, and yeah. I'm, I'm going to put this out here. I was thinking about possibly apologizing for my uh, my inebriatedness, if that's even a word from the previous week, but I figured, fuck it. I'm not sorry, because I had a hell of a time. Yeah, we had a great time. And people know we do more than one episode at a time. So, it was a few episodes in, plus I think we both pre-gamed. Oh my god, plus starting with the 12? That, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was rough. I think, and I propose this to Chad, I'd say we do another drunken episode, however we wait till the summertime. We do it in the summer, and we'll, instead of recording on a Thursday night like we normally do, we'll like do it a on Friday. a... Like a Friday. Like a Friday, late night, we'll, we'll record it like midnight or some shit, and we'll just drink until midnight. Oh, hells yeah. Yeah. Sit around a fire, drink till midnight, and then come in and do a couple episodes. Done deal. <laughs> so, kick up your feet in your dream lounger with some fresh popcorn and drink... Well, we get the show started. All right. So, we kind of did greetings already. So, you know, um, it's been a shitty week at work. It was a shitty day at work. Um, I'm doing a lot of physical therapy right now on my arms, so that hurts like a motherfucker. Well, your tattoo looks okay. My tattoo's, yeah, it's actually healing up pretty well now, so that's that's a good thing. You're, you're past to the point where if somebody bumps it, you want to punch them. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm well past that, but because of some of my... So, I've got... Um, Okay. I have psoriasis, and I found out that getting a tattoo done kicks it up. Oh, that's just so then. So then as it's healing, the psoriasis is coming out, and it becomes a real big fucking mess. Doesn't psori- doesn't the stuff you take for psoriasis kind of depress your immune system, too? I don't, I, don't ha- I don't take anything for it. I use a topical cream. Oh, but it can, though. It can make it, oh, it's, yeah. it's um, immune, immune system whatever else, which means you could get sick from other shit. So, with the week that we've got behind us, with the day that I've got behind us, I say we get drunk. I would agree. All right, so tonight, we're getting away from beer for a bit. We are going to do... We're um, doing cabinet cleaning, apparently. <laughs> well, no, no. Um, we did happen to empty this bottle. And it's only a shot each, so it's not like 
And if we get loaded on a shot each, I'm giving up now. Yeah, exactly. Because... That's time to quit. So, so but, tell uh, us what you got. So we've got... You're familiar with Crown Royal, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, this is a maple Crown Royal. And since it's a sweet kind of smell to it, I mixed it with a uh, like a lemon-lime, like a sweet. Mm-hmm. So it's like a Crown Maple Sweet. Never know until you try it. All right, let's do it. Well, that Ooh, not even so a good. tink. No. Oh, yeah. That's good. It's almost got a cream soda yeast flavor to it. Yeah, it does. I've never had it. Now, obviously, since the bottle was almost gone, I drank this yeah, before. Just a little bit. But I've never had it with sweet. I'm always kind of a cola guy mm. or you know something like that. Right. But I really like that. Yeah, you can definitely smell the maple. That's one of the things that when I first... And you can taste it, too. In the back end. Yeah. Um, I think the artificial sweetener a little bit is kind of conflicting with it. So if this were just like a straight up as opposed to a diet, I'll bet you it'd be really, really amazing. Quite possibly. But no, this is good. I like this. I'm, I'm, I'm ready right, to vote. We, yeah, I'm ready to vote. Thumbs up. up. Thumbs up. Absolutely. Yeah. This is very good. I, I say this is what we drink before we do the next episode. The, yeah. <laughs> the summer episode. There you go. We'll see if they have like a big gallon sized jug of this shit at, at Sam's Club or something. Right. So now before we start talking about a lot of things... I believe it's trivia time. It is. And this one, and as you know, I try to do trivia questions that are pertaining to the topic at hand. All right. So so this topic, and this, I'm thinking you probably are going to get this okay. one. Okay. Who played Robbie Hart in the 2006 Broadway musical adaptation of The Wedding Singer? Oh. I'm not going to say who performed it in the movie. Damn, I thought it was going to be super easy. <laughs> That's like an underhand pitch on a tee. Oh, man. I'm going to have to think about that. You can think about this one just to recap. Who played the main character, Robbie, in the Broadway production of Wedding Singer? Okay. Now, before we move on and get into the songs, we're going to use, again, that that system of of voting, of giving it a number. But not on each and every song. No, we're just going to – I think we'll just do the whole soundtrack as a whole. Yeah, kind of like we did with Days and Confused. Right. So we'll get to the end, and then we'll say, okay, I think it's worth this. Right. Okay, fair enough. So you guys know the ratings, but just to, just to hit them, you know, zero is absolute shit. Kill it with fire before your ears bleed. One to three is a hard pass. Four to six is okay. It's not great, not terrible, but, you know, it's not horrible. Uh, seven to nine is pretty good to great. And, you know, of course, ten is the unicorn. It's the angels are coming down and singing for you. Right, right. So, you know, let's... Let's just get into it. Why don't you go ahead and start with your first one? All right. Yeah, I'll get. To, I'll just kick this thing off, man. Let's kick this pig. So the first song that off the Wedding Singer soundtrack is "Video Killed the Radio Star" by Presidents of the United States. So "Video Killed the Radio Star" is a song written by Trevor Horn, uh, Jeff Dowes, and Bruce Woolley in 1978. It was first recorded by Bruce Woolley and the Camera Club for their album English Garden, and later by British group The Buggles, consisting of Horn, Dows, and... Nope, just Horn and Dows. All right. The track was recorded and mixed in 1979, released as their debut single on September 7th, 1979 by Island Records, and included on their first album, The Age of Plastic. The backing track was recorded at Virgin's Townhouse in West London, and mixing and vocal recording would later take place at Sarm East Studios. Horner said that the short story is the sound sweep in which the title character, a mute boy vacuuming up stray music in a world without it, comes upon an opera singer hiding in a sewer, provided the inspiration for video, and he felt an era was about to pass. 
What the actual fuck? These are his words, not mine. Oh my god. I know. Imagine if we'd been drinking even more. I, it might make sense. Perhaps. Bottoms up. Yeah. So Horn claimed that craft work was another influence of the song. It was like you could see the future when you heard craft work. Something new is coming. Something different. Different rhythm section. Different mentality. So we had all of that, myself and Bruce, and we wrote this song probably six months before we recorded it. All the tracks of The Age of Plastic deal with positives and concerns of the impact of modern technology. The theme of Video Killed the Radio Star is thus nostalgia, with the lyrics referring to a period of technological change in the 1960s. The desire to remember the past and the disappointment that children of the current generation would not appreciate the past. The lyrics relate to concerns of the varied behaviors towards 20th century technical inventions, and machines used and changed in media are such as photography, cinema, radio, television, audio recording, and re record production. Wooly worried about the song's name, given the existence of a band with the name Radio Stars and the song titled Video King by singer Snips. Shall we listen to the destruction of video? And now I understand the supernova scene. So the presidents of the United States of America, occasionally referred to as PUSA, which is what I'm going to refer to them as, were an American twice Grammy-nominated alternative rock band power trio. The band formed in Seattle, Washington in 1993 and disbanded in 2016. The three-piece group consisted of vocalist and bass guitarist Chris Ballo, drummer and vocalist Jason Finn, with guitar bassist and vocalist Andrew McKeague. Guitar bassist and vocalist Dave DeDreeder was a member of the band for 11 years before leaving in 2004. The band released six studio albums during its 23-year existence. Sadly, Pusa is no longer with us, having gone their separate ways in 2016. The song itself, as far as I'm concerned, is amazing. The Buggles version was the first video shown on MTV when it launched back in 1981. The Pusa remake is great. It's very close to the original version, and I just, I really enjoyed it. What do you think? Now, you already mentioned this is a cover of the that song there. The sound is good. I mean, you can definitely tell presidents have their own sound to them. I mean, with um, Lump and Peaches yeah. and, and so on from there. They didn't really change the song that much. They sped it up a little bit. They gave it a little bit more heft yeah. than the original. I like the original better, but this is not a bad song. Right. And were you much of a fan of, of the presidents? Eh. Yeah, I was kind of the same way. They were this song, that and Beck. Those two were just kind of there on the radio at the same time, and I just didn't give a shit. You know, this song, Lump, Peaches, they had a few that were okay. I The reason I liked... Oh, do you remember the Cleveland Rocks song that they did for Drew Carey show? Yes. That one I liked. Um, but Lump, I just... Honestly, I think of Gump more often from Weird Al. Yeah, I, I get that too. I, I understand that. So... What a song number two. Song number two is Do You Really Want to Hurt Me by The Culture Club. Do I really... Do you really want me to answer that? Today, no. Okay. Uh, any other day, I'd say probably you're <laughs> fine. So, Culture Club is, and I almost typed were, an English band formed in 1981 by George Allen O'Dowd, a.k.a. Boy George, Roy Hay, Mikey Craig, and John Moss. Back in the early days, George would sing as Lieutenant Lush with the group Bow Wow Wow, you know, the I Want Candy yep. group. And when his tenure with the group ended, he figured, why not start his own band? 
the name came from the realization that they had a gay Irishman, a black Briton, a blonde Englishman, and a Jewish drummer. Okay. So it's a cultural mix, therefore Culture Club came to be. Kind of clever if you think about it. Uh, so what's the difference between a Briton and an Englishman, by the way? I mean, I don't know. I mean, aren't they the same damn thing, actually? Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, ask King Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, they released a few singles after dropping their debut album, 1982's Kissing to be Clever, where it peaked at number 5 in the UK and 14 in the US. Due to George's androgyny, the media had a bit of a field day, including Dead or Alive, the You Spin Me Right Round guys. Um, lead singer Pete Burns, who claimed he was the first to wear braids, big hats, and colorful attire. Which, boy, George snapped back, it's not who did it first, it's who did it better. Fair enough. Snap. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the three-way snap thing, too. Yeah, yeah. Girlfriend. Exactly. Now, they wrote this success and released a few more albums, but it wasn't really all wonderful. George was on drugs, and he and Moss were in a pretty toxic verbal and physical relationship. Boy George did Band-Aid, and between the breakup with Moss and pressure of fame and touring, got even heavier into drugs. Uh, between that and he and Moss not wanting to be around each other, the band broke up. They tried to reunite in 1989, but George was more into his solo project, so it was canceled. Kicking off with a VH1 Storyteller episode, they did a reunion tour from 98 to 2000. And then did a 20th anniversary concert, but broke up again because George was a successful DJ. DJ Boy George, I guess. I, okay. Craig and Moss tried to tour again in 2006. George and Hay declined. It didn't sound good, so it was shelved. Which, better to not put shitty music out, so I applauded them on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, George, Hay, and Craig did a one-off without Moss due to him having a back injury. And then in 2014, they came back together with all four of them to tour and are still technically active today. Really? Yeah, that's why I said before I almost typed were, but they are active somehow. So they're still saying, do you really want to hurt me? Probably, yeah. In fact, they probably have like the, the 80s one-hit wonders or whatever. Right. They weren't one-hits. They actually had a few of them. Yeah, there. they had a few of them. Because Karma Chameleon was a great fucking song. It was, yeah. So Culture Club released five studio albums that spawned 21 singles, one of which being, do you really want to hurt me? So let's, before we go any further, find out if he really does. Hurt Me is a single off their debut album, Once Again Kissing to Be Clever. George admitted the song was inspired by the rotten relationship that he and Moss had when he felt hurt and emotional most of the time. It's an 80s classic that belongs on any 80s mix. I mean, honestly, if you make a CD or an album or tape or whatever of 80s songs, if this doesn't include it, you don't know your 80s. I might disagree with you on this that. This one or Karma Comedia, Chameleon. I would I would go more likely for Karma Chameleon. Well, I'll tumble for you, too. That's another one. Oh, yeah. Um, anyways, and then if you recall the movie when Alexis Arquette dressed up like Boy George in the movie, it was perfect. I mean, it, yeah. like, they could not have done it any better. And it was even better when he got heckled. Like, you suck. <laughs> So, no, I enjoyed the song. It's it's a great 80s song. What do you think? You know, it's Boy George and the Culture Club was, to me, it was one of those weird 80s flash-in-the-pan kind of things. It was that, guilty pleasure, wasn't it? Kind of. And it, and it just kind of headlonged them into a lifetime of fame with this song and a few others. So he pops up from time to time in movie soundtracks, on TV shows. It's kind of strange. Or getting arrested. Well, that's you. The fact that he was a guy... And wanted to look like a girl in the 80s was absolutely outrageous. The song is actually one I really like. He has a nice tenor baritone voice and it was so typical 80s that when it came to the sound of this song, it's just good music, good song. 
And uh, I got to put this in there as a little side note, is that the first time I saw Boy George out of drag, I had no idea who it was. It was just like, there's this guy standing there, and he's got real short, you know, like, dark hair. And I'm mm-hmm. like, and then he started talking, and then he started singing, and I'm like, he was on a late night show or something. Okay, yeah. And I was just like, oh my god. And then some of the weird outfits that he did too, like the kind of like the the Zerg haircut almost from Fifth Element, how he had like half of his head shaved, but yeah. then the other part looked like it was dripping oil or some shit. Yeah, it's he's had some unique looks, but the guy's got chops. Yeah, absolutely. So what's number three? Number three is every little thing she does is magic by the police. So every little thing she does is magic is a song by British rock group The Police from their fourth album Ghost in the Machine. The song, notable for featuring a pianist, uncommon in police songs, dates back to a demo recorded in the house of Mike Howlett in the fall of 1976. It was also a hit single that reached the top of the charts in the United Kingdom in November 1981 and hit number three on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart that same year. Sting said in an interview with The Independent in September 1993, This was first recorded as a demo with the piano figure. In a studio in Montreal, I had written the song long before the police were successful, but it seemed a bit soft for the band at first. But the demo was really great. It sounded like a number one song to me. I took it to the band, who were reticent, still thinking it was soft. I was saying, but listen, it's a hit. We tried to do it from scratch as the police, but it didn't have the same energy as the demo. After a degree of hair pulling and torturing on my part, I got the band to play over the top of my demo. Feeling that the arrangement of the track was not enough like the police style, Andy Summers, who recalled, as the guitar player, was saying, what the fuck is this? This is not the police sound. And Copeland attempted to change the track. However, as Stuart Copeland remembers, I remember saying, okay, put it up. Sting's original demo, and I'll show you how crummy it is. So Sting stood over me and waved me through all the changes. I did just one take, and that became the record. Then Andy did the same thing on the guitar. We just faced the music, bit the bullet, and used Sting's arrangement and demo. Damn. And Stuart Copeland, uh, that's from Revolver Magazine in 2000. So let's check this out and see if it truly is magic. So the police were a British rock band formed in London in 1977. For most of their history, the band consisted of Sting, Andy Summers on guitar, and Stuart Copeland on drums and percussion. The police became globally popular in the late 1970s and early 1980s and are generally regarded as one of the first new wave groups to achieve mainstream success, playing a style of rock influenced by punk, reggae, and jazz. They are also considered one of the leaders of the second British invasion of the United States. They disbanded in 1986, but reunited in early 2007 for a one-off world tour that ended in August 2008. Though a band no longer, the boys did give us five studio albums from 1978 to 1983. What more can we ask of Sting and the Boys? It's a classic 80s song. The Boys from England put out another great song that is another creepy stalker song. I'll call her up a thousand times a day to ask her to marry me in some old-fashioned way. Like with handcuffs and fur lining? What is it with the police and their creepy fucking music? Once you sit and listen to the lyrics, all their music is like stalker music. Except for Murder by Numbers, that's just about killing people. That's just straight up murder. Yeah. 
So, I, I mean, that's what, it's a good song. Don't get me wrong. I really enjoy listening to it. But when you sit and listen to the lyrics or read the lyrics, it's like, what? If you listen to just the chorus, it's a nice little love song. Yeah. You know, which you could easily put on a love mix or a mix from your girlfriend or wife or whatever. However, if you really dig deep into it for meetings and things, yeah, it's a bit... Um, well, you know, you can do that with a girlfriend or a wife because you're in that already relationship where they're like... Oh, that would be so sweet. He call me up a thousand times a day. Depends on who the girlfriend is. Well, and tell me he loves me and that he wants to marry me, you know. But if you don't know somebody, like you're on your second date and you're like calling her up all the time going, marry me. <laughs> you know, it gets creepy. In the 80s before unlimited minutes on the cell phone. <laughs> well, you'd still be calling from the landline. Get real, man. 10-10-3-2-1. I just saw those commercials on, on uh, Raw the other night. Okay. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God, those are hilarious. All right, no, it's it's again. It sounds like it's a decent love song until you really drill down to it. It's a classic '80s, though. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm gonna go with number four, and number four we have "How Soon Is Now" by the Smiths. What is it with both of my songs being questions so far? It's like, do you really want to hurt me? How soon is now? Do I fucking care? Question mark. Anyways, the Smiths were a Brit rock band formed in 1982 by Johnny Marr. He hooked up with Morrissey, and and they decided to get a band together by the name of the Smiths. They released an EP and some singles while getting a following, putting up their own self-titled album, The Smiths, in 1984, where it peaked at number two in the UK. They continued touring in the UK and US while releasing albums, had a few member shakeups, just like every band does. Marr, between being exhausted from constant touring and recording, as well as his acrimony towards Morrissey, caused a rift that had him leave the band in 1987, which is pretty much the end. The Smiths broke up right after that. All the members went on solo careers with varying degrees of success. Don't even think about a reunion either, because both Smith and Morrissey said it ain't happening. Morrissey was quoted in 2006. Thank God. Yeah, Mor Morrissey said in 2006, I would rather eat my own testicles than reform the Smiths. And that's saying something for a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> and later he stated, I feel as if I've worked very hard since the demise of the Smiths and the others haven't. So why hand them the attention that they haven't earned? Wow. We're not friends. We don't see each other. Why on earth would we be on stage together? Wow. It sounds yeah. almost like a little uh, sour grapes. Yeah, a little bit. And he's many. He stated many times that it wasn't his idea to quit, but rather it was Mars. The one thing they both agree on is it's not about the money. So, hey, it's one thing, I guess. The Smiths released four albums that have spawned 22 singles. And How Soon Is Now is a single that wasn't released on any album, actually. Um, and it wasn't really put out until a compilation called Atful of Hollow. And I'm reading that right from 1984. Okay. Let's... See if it's now or something. There's no segue for this song, so let's just listen to it. Nothing in particular. The song is about Morrissey's crippling shyness and is kind of an anthem for socially isolated and apparently is a bitch to play live due to the guitar effects. Bassist Andy Rourke said it's the bane of the Smiths' live career. Okay. Yeah, so I have to say that while I don't care for the Smiths, including that one that we listened to from our foreign friend, I like this one better. This one, not for the lyrics. Not for the lyrics at all. But for the music, there's just something about it, kind of like that like grinding guitar that almost sounds like... Uh, like a saw coming down. I like that. The music itself is good. The song itself is okay. So he's the sun and the air. He says that over and over in this song. Great. Now fucking quit singing. <laughs> good for you. 
We did another Smith songs when we did a list from Tori in the Netherlands called Suffer the Children, and that song fucking sucked too. Why are these guys so highly rated among the critics? I mean, maybe that's why critics are so universally hated? I, I have no use for this song. I, is it better than Suffer the Children? Yes. Is it a good song? No. Okay. All right. So that was a quick and easy ending. So what's your next one? So Love My Way by the Psychedelic Furs. So Love My Way is a song by English band the Psychedelic Furs. It was released on July 1982 as the first single from their third studio album, Forever Now. Written by the four members of the group and produced by Todd Rundgren, who also played marimba on the song the song reached the top 10 of the charts in new zealand top 30 in australia and top 50 in the united kingdom and united states the song is featured in the 1983 film valley girl which is an amazing fucking movie if you've never seen it you're being serious now i love that movie isn't that uh what is it nicholas cage yeah and uh not what is her name deborah something or other not winger is it no it's not deborah winger but no it's an amazing movie i love it and appears on the soundtracks of the 1998 film The Wedding Singer, the 2017 film Call Me By Your Name, where its appearance inspired a major surge in streaming popularity and the 2002 video game Grand Theft Auto Vice City on new wave radio station Wave 103. The song is also downloadable content for the rock band series of music video games. Let's love my way. Well, the Psychedelic Furs are an English <laughs> band founded in London in February 1977. Led by singer Richard Butler and his brother Tim Butler on bass guitar, the Psychedelic Furs were one of the many acts spawned from the British post-punk scene. Their music went through several phases, from an initially austere art rock sound to later touching on new wave and hard rock. The band scored several hits in their early career. In 1986, film director John Hughes used their song Pretty in Pink for his movie of... Pretty in Pink. The band went on hiatus after they finished touring in 1992, but later regrouped in 2000 and continued to perform around the world. Still alive and kicking today, after an eight-year hiatus, the Furs have released eight studio albums with 2001's Beautiful Chaos Greatest Hits Live being the last offering. The song itself is slow, lame, and almost unrecognizable. Now, the chorus did ring a bell. I do remember that and I also remember hating the song back in the 80s. <laughs> it was like the song you would slow skate to at High Roller, and since I didn't do that, I sat on the sides. I, I'll just pass on this one. I, it's, no. Slow skates, I would go probably play video games. Yeah, something like or that. Or have if, some nachos or something. I was going to say, go get one of those big uh, pretzels with the cheese. Oh, yeah, or the big old rope licorice. Ooh. Yeah, or like that at Sunnyvale. Um, like any of the concession ones had like the ones that were like three feet long yeah, and yeah. they snapped like a motherfucker when you got hit with it, like a whip. <laughs> Anyways, so Love My Way, it's a very new wave 80s song. There's really nothing else to say about that. It really makes me wonder, however, if they, if it weren't for John Hughes and Pretty in Pink and actually more recently Stranger Things, would they be as big as they got? That's a good question. I would say probably not because they're n nothing stands out about them. No, there's nothing special. Their name. Yeah. So this song is just a meh for me. This this is, to me, the same thing that the Smiths one was for you. Okay. So, eh. All right. So, so what do you got next? Next, we've got Hold Me Now. And that's not a question. That's an order, apparently. By the Thompson It could Twins. be a question. Hold Me Now? Or later? 
whatever. Whatever works for you. I'm good. I, I'm easy. So the Thompson... <laughs> passing. The Thompson Twins were a, Brit, were a Brit new wave pop band that formed in 1977. The name came from a pair of detectives from the comic strip The Adventures of Tintin. Which actually, I've heard of that. Yeah. Didn't they make a movie out of it? Yeah, it became Rin Tin Tin on TV. Well, that was the dog. No, Tin Tin, I think, was something different. Was it? Yeah, I think they made an animated movie of it. Well, well I don't we'll know. have to look it up. It originally started of Tom Bailey, Pete Dowd, or I'm sorry, Dodd, John Rug, and John Podgorski. So no Thompsons and no fucking twins. Nope. All right. Dodd and Rug were childhood friends that came to London to make it big with little more than dreams as they were broke as hell and actually squatted most of the time scavenging and borrowing whatever they needed to survive finger quotes borrowing yeah that's called stealing mm-hmm. the members moved pod left and they brought andrew edge who was dropped for chris bell in 1980 a few more lineup shifts occurred and in 1981 they released their debut album a product of participation didn't chart imagine that hmm. the band formed and reformed a few more times before really breaking into the international scene in 1983 they continued as a trio recording and touring, and in 1986, the band was down to a duo of Tom Bailey and Alana Curry, which is how it stayed until calling it quits in 1993 and renaming as Babel. Babel released a couple albums and then split in 1996. The Thompson Twins and Babel released 11 studio albums. 11 studio albums. I did not realize they had left that wow. much music. I thought they had one song. Right. And it spawned 34 singles, one of which being Hold Me Now. I know your arms are all the way across the table, but... Hold me now or later. Don't ask your forgiveness, though I don't know just what I'm asking it for. Oh, 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 oh. Hold me now. Oh, 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 oh. Stay with me. Let love in start. Let love in start. Or never. I guess, whatever. <laughs> it's too warm anyways. I'd be like, hey, yeah. So, Hold Me Now, again, is a single off of 1984's Into the Gap. The song, per Tom Bailey, who was with Alana Curry at the time, was written as a result of some argument that was resolved between Alana and myself. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. There's really not much to say other than it's a very typical 80s song. And it doesn't stand out. It's a typical song. Mm-hmm. Period. So, what's next? Uh, I said I like this song. It's a song about a relationship that's over, but neither of the two involved want to admit it. And one is even trying to rebuild this titanic fucking failure of a relationship. It's just very 80s sounding. I mean, it's all good, I guess, but it's just typical 80s. All right. All right, let's move on to called Every Day I Write the Book by Elvis Costello. Every Day I Write the Book is a song written by Elvis Costello from Punch the Clock, an album released in 1983 by Elvis Costello and the Attractions. It peaked at number 28 on the UK singles chart and was their first hit single in the US, ranking number 33 on the Billboard Top 40. The lyrics draw various parallels between romance and the process of writing a book. The narrator identifies himself as a man with a mission in two or three editions and tells his lover... Your compliments and your cutting remarks are captured here in my quotation marks. He also compares the stages of their relationship with chapters in a book, saying, Chapter 1, we didn't get along. Chapter 2, I think I fell in love with you. You said you'd stand by me in the middle of Chapter 3, but you were up to your old tricks in Chapter 4, 5, 6. In an interview from November 1998, Costello said, Every day I write the book was a song I wrote in 10 minutes, almost as a challenge to myself. I thought maybe I could just... I could write just a simple, 
almost formula song and make it mean something. I was quite happy with it, and I tried to do it in a kind of lover's rock type arrangement, and I wasn't happy with it, and then ended up putting this other kind of rhythm to the song, which was written originally as a kind of mercy beat knockoff. I invested less emotionally in that than any other songs from that time. It is the one that everyone warmed to. Let's see if you warm to every day I write the book. Two, three editions The clan Patrick McManus, better known by his stage name Elvis Costello, is an English musician, singer-songwriter, composer, record producer, author, television presenter, and occasional actor. Costello and the Attractions toured and recorded together for the better part of a decade, though differences between them caused a split by 1986. Much of Costello's work since has been as a solo artist, though reunions with members of the Attractions have been credited to the group over the years. Steeped in wordplay, the vocabulary of Costello's lyrics is broad. His music has drawn on many diverse genres. One critic described him as a pop encyclopedia, able to, quote, reinvent the past of his own image, unquote. The song itself. Let's start with the good. The music... It's only a couple minutes long. <laughs> the jivey kind of horns and piano work is great, I think. Now, I have tried and will never be able to listen to Costello without getting a little bit of bile in my mouth. The song could be great if someone else sang it. That's it. I, The guy just rubs me the wrong way. I don't like his style. He just... What are your thoughts? You know, and I'm going to write exactly... I'm going to read exactly what I've written here. Oh, look, Elvis Costello. Yay. That's literally what I wrote. No, it's it's strangely appropriate for this movie. It fits somehow. I don't know how. It's okay. Just, it's just like a weird piece that fits in there, but it is skipped almost every single time it comes on unless I can't get my finger to the button. You know, honestly, I wanted to watch The Wedding Singer before we did this, and I didn't get a chance to, hmm. but I'm going to take your word that it fits in the movie. First, I think it's when she is walking up to the house I can't to visit him uh, when Julia is walking up to the house to visit him. I'm pretty sure, but I'm not 100% on that. And again, too, it just it's there. It kind of works, but I you're right. I don't care for the guy for some reason. There's just something about him. There's something that's he's just smarmy. Yeah, yeah. He just he strikes me as the kind of guy and who this you'd, wa you'd want to punch. And this shouldn't affect the way you look at his music, but it does. He kind of reminds me of this guy that just thinks he's better than everybody else around him. And is a hipster. Oh, yeah. He was a hipster before hipster was a thing. So I'm though. saying, though. He's a guy who is, like, better than you, and he's a hipster. Yeah. yeah. So, again, this is the one you want to punch in the face. All right. What do you got next, man? Next, we're going to get a little bit more rocking here. We're going to go to White Wedding by Billy Idol. It's about time we get some good music. All right. So, William Michael Albert Broad, known as Billy Idol, is a Brit musician that started off with the band Chelsea on guitar. Billy was the nickname for William, as everybody knows. And then Idol came from a school teacher description of him being Idol, I-D-L-E. Ah. And as in lazy <clears throat> as fuck. Exactly. All right. Now, he decided out of respect for Monty Python's Eric Idol to go with this spelling that we currently know. It's kind of neat. Yeah. Um, not that they'd ever confuse the two, I'm sure. <laughs> no. So he left Chelsea with Tony James and formed Generation X and went to lead vocals. They released three albums and were in a rockumentary DOA rite of passage before disbanding. He went solo after moving to New York and released his self-titled debut, Billy Idol, in 1982, where it peaked at number 45 in the U.S. and number 5 in New Zealand. 
Fair enough. What is with New Zealanders? It's like they take stuff and they just be like, we're going to put it at number one. We like the name, yo. Apparently. Not bad for for the star, right? So his second album, 1983's Rebel Yell, is where he gained his huge foothold in the music scene. Yeah. He continued to record and tour with the career having a bit of a hiccup in 1990 after being in a serious motorcycle accident where he nearly lost his leg. He soldiered on and continued to record but held back on live appearances for a while but came back with additional material and some acting gigs, having a small part in Oliver Stone's biopic The Doors in 1991. There was... There was a video he did right after his motorcycle accident. I forget which one it was, but but all everything of him was like in picture frames and stuff because he did the entire video sitting in a wheelchair. Got his money's worth, I suppose, huh? Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to remember what song that is and show you later. I'm sure yeah. you know it if I could come up with the name. I but. can think of a couple of his greatest hits. I'm not sure which video it would be though. So later in 1994, he collapsed after ODing from GHB, but wanting to be there for his kids, he cleaned himself up, but never completely said he was off drugs. Since then, he's worked on a few new albums and other media projects. He's released seven studio albums that have spawned 37 singles. White Wedding is one of those singles that came off of the self-titled debut in 82 and is a mandatory inclusion on Eddie's any 80s compilation. Let's go ahead and put it, put our hearts full of black out there for a White Wedding. It's a nice day to start a day. It's a nice day for a White Wedding. It's a nice day to start again. It's actually a really good, Heart Full of Black is actually a really good song too. Yeah. By the Exes. Anyways, so there are so many different interpretations of this song. I mean, honestly, you could go and Google search it and you'd find different answers all over the place. Yeah. All the way from drug addiction to Satanism, all the way to incestuous relations. That's the way it always plays to me. Right. However, per Billy Idol himself, it's not truly about any of those things, but rather someone he loves getting married to someone while he still has a thing for her. Now, his while his sister was getting married, and that was in the inspired for the or that was the inspiration for the title Little Sister, that's actually a slang term for girlfriend. Damn Brits. Yeah, I know, right? Confusing us all. Which was where the similarities pretty much end. And again, too, this is a great classic 80s punk-style rock song from an amazing artist. little piece of trivia that I found that I thought was really interesting was that he was considered and was the number one choice of James Cameron for the T-1000 in Terminator 2. Really? But due to his bike accident, he was taken out of the running. No pun, oh, in, no pun intended, right, of course. Right. Can you imagine what that would have been like instead of Robert Patrick if they had Billy Idol as the T-1000? That, I, it would have been kind of badass, yeah, actually. Yeah, it really would have. So, no, a great song. There's not really much else to say about it. So, why this song is played at every wedding I think I've ever been to, including mine, is beyond me. If you really sit and take the lyrics to heart, you would never play this song at a wedding. Oh, God, no. You know, but don't get me wrong. Great music, great song. Billy Idol is amazing. Just not a song for a wedding reception. I mean, no. there's not a whole lot to say about it. It's just amazing. And if for some reason you're listening to this and you've never heard this song... Pause the podcast right now and go listen to it. And while you're at it, listen to part two as well. Yeah. It's, I mean, honestly, just Google it. Yeah. yeah. Google or YouTube it. Actually, there you go. YouTube it. Yeah, YouTube it. So, all right. So what do we got for number, what is it, nine? Number nine. This is actually, these two songs could not have followed better because now we have China Girl by David Bowie. You got Idol and you got Bowie. What else do you need? So China Girl is a song written by David Bowie and Iggy Pop during their years in Berlin. First appearing on Pop's debut solo album, The Idiot, 1977, 
The song became more widely known when it was re-recorded by Bowie, who released it as the second single from his most commercially successful album, Let's Dance, 1983. The UK single release of Bowie's version reached number two for one week in June 1983, behind Every Breath You Take by The Police. Well, the U.S. release reached number 10. A couple interpretations. Paul Trinka, the author of David Bowie's biography, Starman, claims the song was inspired by Iggy Pop's infatuation with Kulin Nguyen, a Vietnamese woman. Niall Rogers, the producer of David Bowie's 1983 version of the song, explained his view of its meaning. I figured China Girl was about doing drugs. Because China is China White, which is heroin. Girl is cocaine. I thought it was a song about speedballing. I thought, in the drug community in New York, coke is a girl and heroin is boy. So then I proceeded to do this arrangement, which was ultra pop, because I thought that, being David Bowie, he would appreciate the irony of doing something so pop about something so taboo. And that what was really cool was that he said... I love that. Let's check out the China Girl. I could escape this feeling with my China Girl. I feel a wreck without my little China Girl. I hear her heart beating loud as thunder. I think it's hilarious that you say that Niall Rogers is something of being so taboo when you've got David Bowie, who was one of the most androgynous people out there at that time. Right, right. So, no, not really so much taboo, but good call, Niall. So, David Robert Jones, known professionally as David Bowie, was an English singer, songwriter, and actor. He was a leading figure in popular music for over five decades, acclaimed by critics and fellow musicians for his innovative rock. His career was marked by the reinvention and visual presentation his music and stagecraft significantly influencing popular music. In the UK, he was awarded 9 platinum album certifications, 11 gold and 8 silver, releasing 11 number 1 albums. In the US, he received 5 platinum and 9 gold certifications. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996, releasing 26 albums during his career from David Bowie in 1967 to Blackstar in 2016. You are sure to find some good music. If there was a style, he did it. The song itself is typical Bowie for the time. Remember, this was off Let's Dance 1983. And, you know, honestly, after reading the lyrics, I'm more apt to believe the concept it was about drugs. I, I didn't really read the lyrics that closely. And it's interesting you mentioned, actually, when you started talking about heroin, I'm like, speedballing. I don't know why that was the first thought that came to mind. And, but Because I'm obviously such a druggie. I was going to say pastime. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's classic Bowie. Now... They had a lot of songs to choose from with the characters, but I think because this is one of his lower register songs, and it was something that was accessible where anybody can sing this song. Right. I think they chose this because it was able to be sung by both Julia and Robbie, and the whole shut your mouth line that actually came into play from Glenn. Right. It worked, and the fact that they both loved Bowie and everything else, I think it was just, it was excellent. Because who didn't love Bowie in the yeah. 80s? So, just, there's not a lot to say. I mean, Davy Jones, or David Bowie, whatever... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great artist. All right, man, what's next? Next, we got Blue Monday, and not the not the Blue Monday that's by Fats Domino, but or Orgy, but Blue Monday by New Order. By Orgy? That's well, that's a cover version, actually. Okay. It is the '90s or 2000s, whatever. But anyways, New Order is it is another one. I almost said was a Brit rock band formed in 1980 of Bernard Sumner, 
Peter Hook, and Stephen Morris. Are you fucking serious? They're still around? Yeah. Okay. All three aforementioned guys were in Joy Division until lead singer Ian Curtis committed suicide. Well, that'll put the end to a band. Rather than keep the old name, because I'm sure Joy Division with a death in the hands really isn't too joyful anymore. Right. They renamed themselves as New Order, and as found by the band's manager, Rob Gretton, he was reading The Guardian and saw an article that said, The People's New Order of Kampucha. And it stuck. Okay. It was made very clear that they had nothing to do with socialism or fascism. They released their debut album, 1981's Movement to Little Acclaim. It's The album title is Movement. It's not Movement to Little Acclaim. Right. No, I gotcha. Um, and didn't do anything, so they just continued to tour with their synth-heavy music style, releasing more and more music. In 1993, they put the band on hold, breaking up two side projects, and then reformed in 1998 at Gretton's suggestion. They put aside any differences and worked amicably and recorded until 2007, Peter Hook mentioned not wanting to tour anymore, and Sumner saying that even if Hook leaves, it's not the end of New Order, and they broke up again. They hooked back up again in 2011, Sans Hook, and started recording again, playing concerts all over the world, and are still technically active today. Wow. Yeah. New Order released 10 studio albums that have spawned 43 singles. I couldn't tell any other na- any other songs by this band. So... Let's go ahead and get a little Blue Monday. So this is a single off of 1983's Power, Corruption, and Lies. It's a classic synth-pop tune of the 80s that was put out by this Brit band. It is seminal 80s. I mean, it's got the sound all over it. If you want to heavy it up a bit, you can listen to the 1998 cover of the song by Orgy, which I mentioned before, um, which was good, heavy, and if you want a techno version, there's a song by Electroset called How Does It Feel, which actually has the same hook that this one does in it. It's an okay song. It's not great, it's not terrible, and it belongs at a dance club, which is where they intended it. Yeah, and I said this is definitely 80s synth pop. The vocals were a little unnerving to me. I'm not sure what they mean, but they just sort of gave me this sense of paranoia as I was listening to it. I'm not a huge synth pop fan, and this song just kind of reinforces why I feel that way. But like you said, dance club in the 80s, it's right where it belongs. Makes me think of Tech Noir from, from Terminator. The, the dance club that Sarah Connor gets in where... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think this might have even been playing there at the time, but... Who knows? It could have been. All right, so we're going to move over to number 11. What do you got for number 11? I have Pass the Duchy. It is a song produced by Tony Owens from Kingston and the British Jamaican reggae band Musical Youth, taken from their debut studio album, The Youth of Today. So not self-titled. Though close. The reggae sound was a major hit, peaking at number one on the UK singles chart. Outside the United Kingdom, it peaked within the top 10 of the charts in the United States and sold over 5 million copies worldwide. The song was the band's first release on a major label, following a shouted intro taken from Uroy's Rule the Nation, the words slightly altered, the track combined two songs, Gimme the Music by U Brown and Pass the Coochie by Mighty Diamonds, which deals with the recreational use of cannabis. Coochie being slang for a cannabis pipe. We learn something new every week on this show. And you said it was a Jamaican group and they're talking something about hash? Yeah. 
No way. Well, they're they're a they're a UK band, but, but they have for Jamaican whatever reason, roots. UK's UK people love Jamaican stuff. Yeah. Like, look at UB40. Oh yeah. Whitest guys ever, but they did Red Red Wine, and you're just like you you look at them and you see who they are. It's just like, wait, what? Exactly. So for the cover version, the song's title was uh, Bowdlerized to Pass the Duchy. The new word being a patois term for the for a cooking pot. All obvious drug references were removed from the lyrics. Example, when the original croons, how does it feel when you got no herb? The cover version refers to food instead. Duchy has since become a drug reference, denoting a blunt stuffed with marijuana and rolled in a wrapper from a Dutch master's cigar. <laughs> Since American and British listeners assumed that the term was a drug reference. Elu man. Pass the Dutchy man. Went out for a walk. How does it feel when you got no food? As I passed the dreadlocks camp, I heard them say. How does it feel when you got no food? Pass the Dutchy pan left hand side. Pass the Dutchy pan left hand side. It's a bond. You didn't think I was going to do it, did Dude, you? that was terrible. <laughs> I didn't say it was good. I'm not Jamaican. I'm not even British. You're barely white. Oh, wait, no. No, I'm really white. <laughs> so Musical Youth is a British Jamaican reggae band. They are best remembered for their successful 1982 single, Pass the Duchy, which became a number one hit around the world. The band recorded two studio albums and released a number of successful singles throughout 1982 and 1983, including a collaboration with Donna Summer... Musical Youth earned a Grammy Award nomination before disbanding in 1985 after a series of personal problems. The band returned in 2001 as a duo. The group was formed in 1979 when the fathers of Kelvin and Michael Grant and Frederick, known as Junior, and Patrick Waite put together a band featuring their sons. The latter pair's father, Frederick Waite Sr., had been a member of the Jamaican reggae group The Techniques. Frederick sang lead with Junior at the start of Musical Youth's career. Although schoolboys, the group managed to secure gigs at different Birmingham pubs and released a double single in 1981, including songs Generals and Political on a local label. An appearance on BBC Radio 1, John Peel's evening show brought further attention to the group, and they were signed to MCA Records. By that time, founding member Frederick Waite Jr. had backed down to be replaced by Dennis Seaton as lead singer. The song itself is great. I've always had a soft spot for reggae music, and I don't know why. Uh, this is you live living vicariously through music. I maybe getting high through music. So this is cute with the young voices added into it. It was well put together, even if it is lightly veiled song about weed. And I don't know how lightly veiled it is. They talked but, about they talked about a duchy being like a cooking pot, like a Dutch oven or something. Right. I I usually pass this duchy of a song when it comes on. Yeah, I can see that. It's, it's okay. I just, it's not my style. I'll listen to it if it's there. It's kind of got that kitschy novelty effect to it. But overall, I'm sorry, children singing in voice, children singing in songs, unless it's Christmas songs, is kind of fucking creepy. Well, yes and no. I it, I would agree with that, like like another brick in the wall. When that the kids was terrifying. Sing, you know, some of the Alice Cooper stuff when the kids sing. That is really creepy. This, it's not so creepy because it's just a group of kids singing. It is. I mean, you can tell it's kind of like, I would picture them like on a street kicking a soccer ball around, you know, with like right, burnt right. out cars and revolutionaries all around and that kind of stuff. <laughs> but no, it's, the song's okay. It's nothing special. All right. Why don't you move on to this, right. this, this, this huge, amazing song that's coming up. Yes. This is, have you written anything lately? Which is another goddamn question. <laughs> 
And that's it's a sound clip from the movie. It's not actually even a song. And I'm sorry, but soundtracks that do that kind of are frustrating, mm-hmm. especially doing this kind of thing where you're trying to talk about it. But there are some clips that I like to have sound clips because they can be played at entertaining times. A banjo, man? What? I'm helping. On the other hand, when you've got something like this, which has like a three-minute piece of the movie that doesn't make a lot of sense unless you can see it and picture it in your mind, it's kind of a waste of fucking time. That being said, this is little more than a lead-in between Drew Barrymore's Julia and Adam Sandler's Robbie in a scene that was following the horrible wedding band auditions (laughs) with, ah, what the hell's the dude's name? Um, He played Jimmy. He was the other wedding singer. You know, John Lovitz. John Lovitz, yeah. Which was awesome. That was great. He sets up the next song in the movie, and which is Somebody Kill Me. Which will be mine. Right. And he explains how it was composed, and he warns Julia that's how the frame of mind he was in. There's nothing else to say about it. So let's just, let's, I'm not even sure if we can play the whole thing or not. We probably can. It's under 30 seconds. Yeah, but the whole 10, 10%, whatever. But, well, we'll see if they say anything <laughs> about it. But Have you written anything lately? Yeah, I guess. Will you play it for me? You don't want to hear it's not good. No, I'm sure it is. It's just I wrote half of it when I was with Linda, and I wrote the other half after we broke up, so it's a little uneven, you know? I don't mind. I'd like to hear it. Yeah, Yay. So the only thing I have to add to that is, as I was doing this last, last night or the night before, I'm like, Ooh, Drew Barrymore. That always her voice always makes me happy. She's just got one of those voices. Yes, I've always had this crush on Drew Barrymore. I'm not gonna say since E.T., but since shortly after that. Firestarter. Ooh, I don't think I've seen her in Firestarter to be honest. But um, you know, it's just one of those things. I've always kind of had this crush on Drew Barrymore. So hearing her voice just kind of makes me smile. All right, so let's go into Somebody Kill Me. Did we even leave a space to play that clip or no? Oh, you know we didn't. Should we play it right? Now? Why don't we just do a back-to-back? We'll do that one, and then we'll just kick into your song right away, and then we can talk about it. Well, actually... Or should we talk about it, and then we'll play both of them together? Yeah, we'll play it right on the start of mine. All right. So, yours is going to be... Somebody Kill Me by Adam Sandler. I want you to know that when I wrote this, I was listening to a lot of The Cure. That is a direct line from the, from the, before the song starts. And like a lot of Adam Sandler's work, this song is terrible if you look at it as just a song. Technical. Yes. Technically, it's terrible. As a piece of comedy, it is pretty funny and damn good, I think. So let's just start out by listening to it. Have you written anything lately? Yeah, I guess. Will you play it for me? You don't want to hear it's not good. No, I'm sure it is. It's just I wrote half of it when I was with Linda, and I wrote the other half after we broke up, so it's a little uneven, you know? I don't mind. I'd like to hear it. So Adam Richard Sandler is an American actor, comedian, screenwriter, film producer, and musician. After becoming a Saturday Night Live cast member, Sandler went on to star in many Hollywood feature films that combined have grossed over... Two billion dollars at the box office. Good lord. Playing the same character in exactly. every single one. Exactly. He is best known for his comedic roles, such as in the films Billy Madison, the sports comedies Happy Gilmore and the Waterboy, the romantic comedy The Wedding Singer, Big Daddy, and Mr. Deeds. 
And of course, in my favorite role of his, voicing Dracula in Hotel Transylvania and Hotel Transylvania 2. And 3 is coming out soon, isn't it? I know. I should, Next wa- I should year, watch I those one of these days. He has ventured into more dramatic territory with his roles in Punch Drunk Love, Spanglish, which is a horrible movie, Rain Over Me, Funny People, and The Merowitz Stories. What about Grown Ups? That's kind of an ensemble one, though, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Or Bedtime Stories was actually funny. I have not seen that one yet. Okay, go on. So Sandler has released five comedy albums in his career. They're All Gonna Laugh at You, 1993, and What the Hell Happened to Me, 1996. They're both certified double platinum. Jesus. And I think I paid for one of them. So, in 1999, Sandler founded Happy Madison Productions. What is there to say about this song? I've already I've already said it. It's As a song, it's horrible. As a piece of comedy, I think it works. And in this movie, it works amazingly. Mm-hmm. What do I, you got to say? All I have, in fact, you can even see four words. This song is hilarious. Okay. That's all fair, I got. Fair enough. Let's wrap this baby up. All right. So, last one we've got is Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang featuring Ellen Dow. The Sugar Hill Gang is, I almost typed was again... I know! Wow. An American hip-hop group that formed in 1979 in New Jersey by natives Michael Wonder Mike Wright, Henry Big Hank, Hank Big Bank Hank Jackson, and Guy Master G. O'Brien. Okay. O'Brien. <laughs> so, it's a black Irish. Well, that, that happens. The three were discovered by fame-slash-infamous producer, depending on who you talk to, Sylvia Robinson, who was the CEO of Sugar Hill Records. She also worked with Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, which gave her the nickname the Mother of Hip Hop. The group named themselves after the record company, and at, which was named after a Harlem neighborhood, Sugar Hill. They released their first album, the self-titled Sugar Hill Gang, in 1980, where it peaked at number four on the U.S. R&B chart. Because apparently they didn't have a hip hop chart back then. Probably not. They continued to tour and record, releasing four more albums before breaking up in 1985. They reconvened in 1994, and the surviving members have been touring ever since, oftentimes with Living Color, which I'm sure you'll recognize the band who gave us the CM Punk Ring of Honor entrance theme. The Sugar Hill Gang has released five studio albums that have spawned 15 singles. Rapper's Delight is one of said singles. Let's go ahead and just take a quick listen to this one. But first I got a bang, bang. The boogie to the boogie, say up, chop the boogie to the bang, bang, boogie. Let's rock. You don't stop. Rock the rhythm that'll make your body rock. Well, so far, you've heard my voice, but I brought two friends along. And next on the mic is my man Hank. Come on, Hank, sing that song. Check it out. When I'm imp the dimp, the ladies pimp, the women fight for my delight. But I'm the grand master with the three MCs that shop the house for the young ladies. I want to thank you, though. Why is that? I now have cult of personality playing in my head. You're welcome. <laughs> and that's a great not song. A, that's not a bad thing. That's, that's a actually song. a really good song. Rapper's Delight, again, is a single released on their 1980 debut album. It was kind of the gold standard for a rap song. It was bragging, it was dancing, it was sex, and it used a sample of uh, Sheik's disco song, Good Times. Rapper's Delight was the first rap single to get to be top 40 hit on the Billboard 100. Wow, okay. This is just a fun song, and I have to say that when we saw Robbie giving Rosie her singing lessons in the movie, there was no way that anybody would have guessed that it would be her singing this song. Of all things. And yeah. she does a decent job of it, too, for the first couple verses or whatever. Yeah. I'm glad it was only a short time because it would have gotten old, but it was a really funny, unexpected departure. I appreciate this song. So, Rosie, the little old lady in the movie, did an amazing job with this. You know what? I love that old lady. I'm just going to say it. The song itself is okay. I'm not much of a rap guy, but the fact that she did it at the wedding as a, as a gift to... Um, 
the bride and the groom. Mm-hmm. It, it, I just thought that was such a heart-wrenching moment. It really was. And I'm sure that Ellen Dow is probably no longer with us. I don't remember. Okay. But, I mean, she was 100 years old when the movie came out. Something like that. <laughs> so, but no. Uh, like I said, the song, it's all right. So, we're going to go back, and what do you think of the whole soundtrack, or the soundtrack as a whole? Okay, so as a whole, there are some very good songs on here. There are some dumpers, too. There are some real big dumpers on this one. But overall, I think I would listen to more of it than I would skip through. I gave it 6 of 10. I would say a solid 7, because this is kind of, it's 80s. It's all it really is, and honestly, I will say this. They did put a volume 2 of the soundtrack out, which actually is better, in my opinion. Oh, okay. Because it has the Wanna Girl Old song, With You song, which is classic. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to do that one somewhere down the... Perhaps. You know, it's got Hall of Oats. I mean, Hall of Oats is 80s personified, Oh, yeah. Too. Hall of Oats is... is um, they did some really good stuff. They did some real news fest stuff, mm-hmm. too. But So, let's do... Let's get this uh, trivia question wrong out of the way. Right. <laughs> so, you think you're going to get this one wrong, or you just have no idea that's why? I have one thought. Okay. So, who played Robbie Hart... In the 2006 Broadway musical adaptation of The Wedding Singer. Greg Kinnear. That's actually a really, really good guess. It's wrong, but it's a really good ah, guess. So who was it? Stephen Lynch. And now that you say that, I knew that. <laughs> so, and I have the Broadway soundtrack, which is hilarious. He does such a good job with it. Oh, I can imagine. So, yes, it was Stephen Lynch. But, you know, what I did is I'm, like, thinking in my head, I'm like, okay, the time period. I'm like, who would I have cast? And... Okay, yeah, Stephen Lynch would have been a good one, but I would have cast Greg Kinnear. Mm-hmm. Okay, listen up, everybody. Turn up your volumes. Announcement. Thanks again for uh, hanging out with us, and if you want to reach out to us, let us know if you like this episode, any of our other episodes, or if you hate this episode or any of our other episodes, there's a few ways you can do that. First, you can reach us on email at eclecticmusicproject at gmail.com. If you want an update on Eclectic uh, Music uh, Project, you can do that simply by, on this same thread, go back and listen to episode 16. Want to hear something interesting? And if that's all you want, just go to the last five minutes and you can get the update. You can also send us an email at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com. That email will slowly be being um, gotten rid of. Phased out. Phased out. So, But for now, you can still use it. You can find us on Facebook at Musically Challenged Podcast or at POI Network. Either one of those places, drop us a line. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And, of course, our third and final way is Twitter. And if you want to go ahead and send us something, if you just don't want to do Facebook because it's too it's too whatever, or you don't feel like sending an email because you don't feel like typing it, you want to put all your feelings into 160 characters or less, hit us up on Twitter. We're at, at MCPodcast17. And that way you can tell us if we're great, if we suck. If you want to send us a playlist of 10 different songs by 10 different artists, if you want to have a theme, great. If you don't want to have a theme, just throw a random shit our way. That's perfectly good, too. But hit us up. We'll be more than happy to hear from you. Excellent. And with that, thank you guys for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.